Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We are back with our discussion episode for chapter one of the novel Peace, published in 1975. Uh, we've, uh, we've teased a lot. I mean, there's just so <laughs> freaking much in this chapter, like one of the shortest chapters in this book. And I feel like we, we, we could probably have four or five discussion episodes about it. We already earmarked, a, uh, I don't know, three at least big passages that we want to go through. A lot of material. Where do you want to start, Brandon? Yeah, I mean, there is just far too much that is unknown at this point in our <laughs> investigation. There are, as you said, many things that are hinted at, many repeated images and suggestions about what sorts of things are lurking in the shadows and in the in the corners of the text itself. And we just don't know, though you have a better idea than I, uh, whether or not they'll be present moving forward. We're going to have to see what I want to do in case anybody's just listening to the discussion episodes of this uh of this series is just start by giving a rough recap of, of the first chapter of what we know about Alden Dennis Weir, about how he's going about his story. And Glenn, you know, feel free to add or correct this, this brief synopsis once I finished it, or just interrupt me and jump in and and tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So Alden Dennis Weir wakes up after a, a tree falls, an elm tree, the crashing of which he didn't hear and is immediately revealed to us. Weir is as a character, as a man rather who though in intelligent, doesn't really look beyond himself for answers. Uh, He doesn't look beyond his own capacity to extrapolate. So he's very confident in his rationales for anything he comes up with. He lives in one room of his house near his fire and wonders about getting exercise. So through some unexplained mechanism, whether it's merely memory or there is something more speculative involved here, Weir visits his doctor in his mind in the past. That's how the information is presented to us. Weir is concerned about a stroke he will have in the future of the doctor visit, but in the past of this record collection. And then he recalls a birthday party where he's five years old. He recalls a Christmas with his mother's father when he is six, or so I claim when he's six. And then we get this fable or maybe a parable or at the very least a folktale told by uh, his family's housekeeper, as you said, Glenn, Hannah, about why you shouldn't force or trick people into saying things where he seems to have also traveled into Hannah's mind as she goes back in her memory to recount the story. Uh, Finally, he returns to the doctor's office where the doctor corrects one of Weir's extrapolations. As I said, that's, that's a big red flag to me. And then they start a thematic apperception test in order for the doctor to understand what is going on with Weir's mind, why he believes he's the only mind in existence and what is going on in his understanding of the world he's in. Right. One thing that we're going to want to talk about in this episode, and maybe it's what you want to lead with, Brandon. I don't know. You've got the outline. I don't. I'm just here for the ride like the (laughs) listeners are, I suppose. But one thing I I want to mention is just when this story is taking place, the the present of the story when Weir has had this stroke and is having these memories seems to be more or less contemporary with the the writing or the publication of the novel. So it's the 1960s or the the 1970s. And we can, there's some some technological things. things going on in the story that allow us to make that claim. Uh, And so then the memories of these things or the the episodes that we're getting from his childhood and so on uh, seem to be in the early part of the 20th century that we we may want to talk about, you know, when more specifically than that, we think these things are going on. 
Yes, that is a, a, a non-controversial point. I have no strong feelings about that. I do think it takes place contempor- contemporaneously with the uh, publication or the writing of this story. And so, yeah, we're looking at turn of the century uh, America, if Weir is in his 70s, and maybe this childhood hood, hood stuff, Glenn, I remember you suggested might take place between uh, World War One and World War Two. My feeling is that it takes place even prior to to World War One. Uh, okay, yeah, and it, it, yeah, let's uh, let's just go ahead and do this now, right? So Weir, you know, at least Doctor Van Ness says that Weir seems like he's probably around sixty or sixty-five or in his sixties at any point, based on the description of himself that he he provides, the sort of oral description that he provides. But there are some clues that we get about when the the birthday party is taking place, when the the Christmas when he's six is taking place, and also he tells us that uh, when he is uh, an early adolescent. He's living with his aunt, Olivia, and we get some information in in all of those things that that can let us suss out when we are. For example, we we know that there are telephones. uh, We know that there are cars. And in fact, the the cars are described as having wood paneling, like wood sides. So that can tell us something about that. There's train travel and and so on. But uh, for me, actually, I think one of the most important details that we get here in terms of, of, of something that we can hang a date on is the are are the books that have been published so we've got uh, George MacDonald, we've got Andrew Lang. Those are 19th century figures, So, but like late 19th century figures. So we know that those books must already be in existence and be being published in America at that point. But then we also have this biography of Napoleon by uh, Emil Ludwig, which was a, a real famous book, real sensational book in the, uh, the, the first half of the 20th century. And we know when that was available in America in an English translation. That was first available in uh, 1926. And so Weir's recollection of having read that book or Weir's knowledge of that book when he's telling people about his Aunt Olivia's uh, little Dresden figure of Napoleon means that that incident, that period when he's living with his Aunt Olivia around age 13 or so has to be 1926 or later. I love this. I think that is uh, a great way to suss out the timeline here. So definitely, uh, I guess the interwar period or uh, around the time of World War One is his fifth birthday. That That's what you're suggesting here. That is what I'm suggesting. And and the other thing that I will suggest is that we do have all this sense at the, the birthday party and, and also at the Christmas that we're talking about families uh, of means here, families with uh, with wealth and inherited wealth. So I suspect then that we're in the 20s at that point. Times are good before the Great Depression is what I'm saying. All right. I, I can buy all of that. And I think it's all non-controversial. The, the timeline that I was thinking of is that Weir was describing his age uh, when he has a stroke, when he had the stroke to his doctor. So in the doctor's office, he's like 45 or 50. And in the present, he's a little older. If he's 70 uh, or 65 or 70 when he has the stroke, and this was published in the early 70s, that puts us around like 1905 to 1910. So that that was kind of my calculation. So let's just use your timeline. And, and if that informs um, how we're going to respond to what I have in mind for this discussion, then uh, that that's a good place to really start. Uh, but what I'm what I'm going to do is really look at what 
sorts of things are threaded throughout this basic framework of the of the chapter. And there are a lot of images and suggestions, as I said, of what is going on deeper in the text. So for the sake of the discussion, I'm going to characterize these themes and motifs in the following way. We're going to talk about the relationship between weir and memory or the past. This is what I'm going to call lost places or lost time. And this is something that I think has to do with grief. These memories, uh, these lost places and lost times are a what's called a present absence in Weir's life. I'm going to, I'm going to use that phrase. That's a phrase often used in, in grief and uh, understanding grief. It's something that he lives with, but he cannot return to or grasp. And I, I think again, it's uncontroversial to say that this sort of presence of something absent or unobtainable is characteristic of, of a grief experience and Weir's isolation and age for uh, his isolation from others and his age are really not helping matters here. He's an old man reflecting on the past and what has stayed with him are these moments. I think that he's never been able to, though he returns to them often to change. Uh, the next motif we'll talk about is the relationship between Weir and place. And this is going to be examining how Weir characterizes not just his place in some sort of social order or in a physical realm, but his place in how he conceives of America and his place in the cosmos. So this section is the one that's really going to focus on cosmology, which as far as I'm concerned, uh, Glenn, feel free to correct me, is a way of categorically understanding our how our worldview provides us a place within an order of being. Uh, for instance, in some episodes in our in our podcasts in the past, I've referenced Walker Percy, who has pointed out that the Catholic the Catholic cosmology traditionally placed man in the order of being on a scale somewhere between beasts and angels. But a contemporary cosmology, if it can even be called that, really has man in terms of an order of being as an organism among organisms. Uh, the last motif that is present in this text that really surprised me the most, as I, as I brought up many times, is the relationship between mothers and children, particularly the image of the Lamia, the Lamiae, and the Banshee, the mother who devours or destroys her own children. Uh, particularly, I think this becomes manifest in the Banshee prophesying about the coming Antichrist. And while we've all seen Omen and all know what the responsible thing to do is, uh, if we are uh, Gregory Peck in that movie, <laughs> um, though we also can sympathize with how impossible that must be. But I, I think we should start with this last motif that I've discussed here, uh, because we can do a drive-by of these images as they're presented to us in the text. And I don't know if there's anything to do with these images yet, because we're still in Weir's recollections as a child. So I don't know if this is describing Weir's relationship with his own mother, or if Weir is going to be the father of the Antichrist, or it's maybe the Antichrist himself, <laughs> or is going to have some sort of situation that results in the death of the child or destroys the child that he can lay on the mother of the child. It's far too many unknowns. I do not have enough data points to extrapolate. And as we said in the first episode, I do not have Weir's confidence even in my own extrapolations often. So, <laughs> Well, all right, let's let let's let's get into it. This is a big outline, but I think we can do it. It, it is massive, but we can move through it. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just start with the, the dark mother or the absent mother here. The On page 11, we have uh, this description of winter 
gardens and winter woods. And this is what Wolf writes. The roses and all the trees still have hard, tight winter leaf buds. And indeed, some of the roses still show like mothers holding up their dead infants, the softly rotten shoots they put forth in the last warm weather of the fall. Uh, on page 14, uh, we see Weir's paternal grandmother haunting Weir's birthday party as a five-year-old and is the only one besides Hannah, we also learn, who has met Joe, who died as a child. So we have a, 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 the ghost of the grandmother and this reference to her child who died when he was about Weir's age at the time of this recollection. All right, then we jump ahead in the text a little bit. On page 33, Weir's maternal grandmother, Evani, has, quote, passed over and remains, like Joe, only available to Weir in a portrait, which is a portrait of a, a woman in the majestic and complex costume of the 1880s. Uh, Evani is her name, and uh, and Mab sleeps in uh, Avani's mother's old room. So there's this, you know, multi-generational household basically we're seeing here. And Mab is, is kind of taking the role of the matriarch in some form or another here, at least symbolically, though it also could just be practically though, you know, who knows how any of this makes sense because we're getting it from <laughs> a really uncertain subjective point of view from the child. Uh, so on page 43, we learned that Hannah's mother passed away when she was a child and she had a stepmother. And then also they brought in this other working girl called Kate and also had a stepsister called Mary. So here's another stepmother here. Uh, page 46, the Banshee. This is the spirit of the midwives that have killed the baby because someone gave them gold to do it because the child was illegitimate in some sense. And now the Banshee can't rest until whatever land it was on is under the sea. That's the phrase we get. Page 49, well, we see the father of the Antichrist unmasked, though I suppose that means the mother is as well. Um, and if Jack and Molly had a child at some point that is not revealed in this in this folk story, uh, then the Antichrist is walking around, <laughs> though he'd be fairly old by now. On page 51 is the visit with the Indian woman, Hannah's visit. This is what Hannah says. The Indian woman wouldn't even look at me, just kept rocking back and forth with the baby on her lap there. The baby never moved, and I think maybe it was dead. Just a little baby. I told Pa about the woman afterward, afterward, and he said, probably she was drunk. And then finally, we get these references to the mythical mothers and fairy mothers. This includes Avani, Mab, Lamia, Lamia and Titania. Two are from Shakespeare, two are from myth. Uh, Avani's chi child by Apollo finds this line of prophets, uh, as we talked about. Mab is a fairy queen and midwife. This is mentioned in Romeo and Juliet. Lamia devoured her own children and then became a prophetess. And Titania is the fairy queen who was fighting with her husband Oberon about what to do with the changeling and causing this argument is causing really destructive weather. Also, they're both victim to each other's infidelities. So I, at this point, I'm really not suggesting to you, Glenn, that there's any consistent element that's tying <laughs> this all together. Uh, just that we have this fairy tale imagery on one level, level uh, the stepmothers, the matriarch usurpers, this sort of thing uh, is, is coming into play here, especially in the relationship between Mab and uh, grandfather Elliot. 
though she's a nurse, she's really playing the role of a housewife here. And the question of uh, sexual uh, favors or benefits or intercourse, whatever's going on, is, is a question mark for Weir. Uh, so we have this kind of fairy tale imagery on one level, and then this very other dark motif of dead mothers or mothers and dead infants on another. So we meet very few mothers actually in this text. And we have maybe one interaction with Weir and his mother when they're sharing a bed, if you can call it that, which Weir quickly leaves to spend time with his grandfather. Uh, two explicit images, three if you include Joe of mothers and dead children. And a large part of this chapter then is also about a banshee and Jack who has some really questionable ethics surrounding romantic love and whose punishment, one might say, of his pursuit of Molly is that they can't have children because if they do, they'll produce the Antichrist. So I don't know if this jumped out to you as much as it did to me on this text here, but Glenn, I'm wondering if you have any sense of what's happening here and maybe even more so what we should be on the lookout for as we continue this novel. I know you've read the book already, but uh, if you pretend you haven't, what does all of this suggest to you? <laughs> well, I don't have to pretend I haven't. I did read it once 15 years ago. So, you know, that that's the amount of time between Weir's stroke and the uh, the doctor's visit here. So uh, it's been a while. So I really don't remember what's going to what's going to happen next or what things are going to become important. And, and it's a fun place to be because reading it at, at this with this detail and, and talking about really just, you know, every paragraph with you is pointing out things that I think I probably overlooked when this was really just meant to lull me to sleep after uh, working an all night shift when I read this 15 years ago <laughs> when we were working that terrible job in the military together. But yeah, so this is obviously a motif. I, I don't know that it's a theme yet. I don't know what Wolf is doing with it, but you, you can't bring up this many dead babies accidentally. Like, I don't care how many monkeys you have banging away on a typewriter uh, and for how long, you're not going to come up with this accidentally. It's obviously intentional. The other thing on this, though, of course, that really jumps out to me is Weir. Weir has no kids. He does not seem to have a, a partner or does not seem to have had a, a, you know, a spouse at any point. He talks about he was living in an apartment when he had this house built. He's dealing with the architect, comes over to his apartment, even though he was a wealthy man who could afford to make this mansion and fill it up with museum rooms, he, which he was doing just for himself to go live in. And so he himself seems kind of orphaned as an old man at this point. I think that is the exact right word to use. This use of all of this mythical and Shakespearean imagery, also gardening imagery. We're going to talk a little bit more about the natural world uh, in as we when we talk about the lost un, and unreachable places. Um, but there's a real fairy tale element to here: the orphaned child, the a uh, child who grows up without a mother and who has the stepmother, you know, and now I wonder if Oliv if we're going to have to look into Olivia uh, and see her in a different light as a result of what Wolf is, of how Wolf is threading the needle here about mothers and dead children. Certainly if he lives with his aunt, his mother either dies or leaves him in, in some way. Uh, we don't know quite what's going to happen there. But this imagery is so dark and so intentional, and it is at really key points in the text. And it's shocking that I, I just think 
we're dealing, yes, on one level with that fairy tale, the stepmother, the child who grows up and has to conquer the world without the the nurturing guidance of a mother uh, and whose father then is caught up in a relationship with another woman and is focused on preserving that rather than caring for the child. That is a kind of classic fairy tale structure. But then we have the literal inclusion of these fairy mothers who, if we're looking at Mab, is the midwife of fairies, and then combine that with the Banshee, who is this midwife who destroys children, and then Titania, who is a fairy who kidnaps children and replaces them with the changeling uh, in order to achieve their own ends. I don't know what any of this means, but it's here and maybe it's here to stay. Right. And and although I have nothing concrete to say in order to tie these things together, we, we, we've we said the word changeling a whole bunch. And we should, I just want to remind people that this novel is taking place in the same town as Wolf's short story, The Changeling. So I don't think that the invocation here of A Midsummer Night's Dream is is accidental or not related to that in some way. But uh, you know that that's a topic probably we'll have to take up in the actual wrap-up episode like a year and a half from now when we get done with this book. Yeah, well let's let's put this topic behind us. It's th- that section was really just meant to alert you and I to and our listeners to uh, a very strange and easily overlookable, I think motif in the first chapter of the story. I'm not sure if I wasn't reading as closely as I was, I would have placed much importance on these kinds of references. Uh, but here they are. So the next thing I want to talk about is the the lost places, as I'm calling it. We're going to start with the physical places, and then I guess we'll move into the memory places. I am not going to enumerate all of these because this is a major theme of the chapter, Uh, but I'm going to point out a few that highlighted what I mean by this subject, and maybe then we can talk about how this category of uh, approaching the lost past helps us create an interpretive method with regard to the text. Here we can maybe stake out some ground if you like. Uh, Of course, we're going to see how all this holds up as the book continues. This will be, though it's very unscientific in the scientific term, like a theory. We're going to test it. Uh, It's a hypothesis, I I, I guess. But as we know, great novels also train you how to read them while you read them. And I think that is also part of what Wolf is doing in this chapter by giving these uh, brief thoughts on the lost and unreachable places of the past and maybe of the present. So the most obvious example of the physical lost places of this motif in the story is... Uh, are the two references to St. Brandon. Uh, The first is in the midst of what will be a core passage in our cosmology discussion. And this is where Weir is thinking about these uh, manufactured peoples, imagined, uh, these imagined peoples of exotic lands. Uh, It's what we called in our recap episode, the treaties on uh, race stereotypes and (laughs) epic fantasy. Uh, But this passage, when we talked about it in our second episode, is actually just really opaque with regards to its meaning. As I said, maybe it's about fantasy races, but the structure of the passage is really about or around the artificial material that makes up the knife handle of the Boy Scout knife, which is simulated uh, staghorn. So what we're doing is engaging in this kind of imaginative exercise uh, about the animal that is the simulated stag. And boy, this goes off on a tangent real quick, and it's a pretty dark fable 
it ends up being about the fake hunter who cannot butcher. And incidentally, we do get a sense that Weir's father was a hunter, and that's why he missed Christmas. But whatever this passage is 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 uh, uh, about, this is perhaps. I'm going to suggest also a passage about America and their treatment of uh, its indigenous population in that it has been suggested that St. Brandon did find North America far before anyone quote unquote claimed it. And that's why I think the passage reads, and I'm going to quote here, only the rarest, the russet browns belong here, native to St. Brandon's land, and they are dying. The things they are famous for are not strange oaths or ability at any art or cunning in a trade, but alcoholism and gonorrhea and dwindling. So to me, this is talking about this exotic population, this imaginary place that nobody's ever been able to find again uh, from St. Brandon, the navigator's journey to this to this land. But this is also embedded in a passage about stereotypes of races. And this one is pretty clearly to me, uh, stereotyping American Indians in the, in the 19th and early 20th century. This to me, this was the most exciting passage of the chapter. And I want to talk about it more broadly, I think, before I address what you've said about it and, you know, particularly what you've said about its intersection with the Native Americans. And I, I want to do that because we we said that we would go through this when we, and by we, I mean me, I <laughs> glossed over it in the recap episode. And and you just invoked fantasy races. I, th- I think I made a, a D&D joke in the recap episode, but that is really just a shorthand way of saying, whoa, hold on. That's some scientific racism right there. And I'm not, I'm not actually sure if we've ever talked about scientific racism on this podcast before. We've definitely talked about it on Elder Sign. We, we talk about it every time we deal with Robert E. Howard. We've probably talked about it when we've dealt with Lovecraft before. Uh, if not, we certainly will. So let me just start by defining my term there, defining what I mean by scientific racism. And we all know what racism means, right? That racism means believing that uh, human beings, the, the species of Homo sapiens, can be divided up into other groups based on biological characteristics. Uh, and our particular form of, of racism in the modern world, meaning since 1500 or really maybe since 1300 might be the better way to put that, it's largely meant skin color, some other things as well. That's what we mean by racism. And then when we put the word scientific in front of it and call the whole thing scientific racism, we're talking about that system of racism, that way of dividing people up uh, into into categories, uh, but now justifying it on scientific means or scientific reasons. And, and, and really saying that it's, it's not simply that uh, noticing something about your body means that I can know some things about you. It's really saying that the things that I notice about you that I also notice at the same time as I am noticing characteristics about your body, it really it's a way of saying that, that behaviors that I witness from you and uh, cultural expressions that I see from you, while I also am noticing physiology, right? Your skin color really is what we're talking about here, of course, that it's not simply that those things are coincidental. It is in fact that one of them determines the other, right? It's that there is actually something about your behavior and about your culture that is innate and immutable, that it is biological, it is hereditary, that you you inherit these traits from your parents, your biological parents, 
And of course, Ray, we all now think that this is absolutely silly. I mean, when I talk about this with students, one of the things I will joke about is the fact that I think we're all pretty clear that there's no gene for wearing pants versus a gene for wearing togas or tunics or whatever, right? That we all know that that is silly. There is no such thing that, right, that is, that is culture. That has nothing to do with any kind of uh, genetic or hereditary uh, component. It is not tied to our bodies. It is not innate and it is not immutable. And, and that's kind of an extreme way of putting it. Most people who subscribed to scientific racism wouldn't really have expressed it that way either. Really, uh, people who, who subscribe to this mode of, of thinking really were thinking of attributes like temperament and um, rationality and anger. Uh, a, a good way maybe to, to think about it is stereotypes of Irish people as passionate and, and also as drunks, right? And to see that as not tied to some kind of learned behavior, tied to, to culture, but tied to something innate, uh, something a person would possess even if raised by a family of a different ethnicity or a different race. And this belief system, the scientific racism, this was a key part of our Western worldview for well over a century. It wasn't necessarily tied to moral positions, wasn't necessarily for every individual tied to uh, some kind of chart of superiority and inferiority or, or, or spectrum continuum is probably the better way to put that, wasn't always necessarily connected to that. But this idea, the idea that behaviors and culture were innate and connected to your body, this was taken as a given by almost everyone. And as I said, we have seen this expressed a lot in the speculative fiction of Robert E. Howard and, and other interwar uh, writers as well. That's, you know, there's no accident that that is also at the time that Nazism is, is becoming a thing, that Nazism is uh, growing in Germany and, and coming to power in Germany, that this is, this is really the that that interwar period is actually really the the apex of this worldview. But the, the war itself and the aftermath of the war was certainly not the end of this. Uh, academics, scholars, scientists in all sorts of fields and disciplines really did get to work on interrogating that system of thought, this belief system in scientific racism. But in the pop culture, this stuck around in, in, well, until now, really, basically, I mean, there's it's not an accident, right, that we're making D&D jokes and talking about fantasy races and so on. It is heavily in our pop culture. I was really exposed to this via Star Trek, which, of course, right, is ironic because Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek, right, is to uh, is, is very much tied up with the civil rights movement in the 1960s, wanting to wanting to have representation of non-white people and non-men on, on the screen to show this egalitarian utopia of the future, something that he wanted to show us we could attain. But at the same time, the uninterrogated, the unexamined assumptions about race and culture are all over Star Trek, right? One of the earliest things that you learn about Star Trek is that Klingons behave a certain way. All Klingons behave that way, and you don't have a choice in, in that matter. You absolutely, that your behavior, your culture, your worldview, your attitudes are innate and immutable. They are biological. They are not culture. And, and one of the ways that we really see that, of course, is the character of Worf, who is the most Klingon Klingon that there is even though his backstory is that he's actually raised by humans. Now, that gets retconned eventually, though 
more really retconned by fans than on screen, actually, but gets retconned as Worf gets really interested in being a Klingon because he is a biological Klingon. That's his species being raised uh, in Minsk uh, back on Earth and is interested in learning about his biological heritage as a, as a teenager, essentially, and so becomes really super-duper Klingon in the absence of actually participating in Klingon culture. But that's not really what we see on screen. We just see that Worf is this way, Worf behaves this way, and, and in fact, he's an extremely passionate person because of his biology and not because of his, his upbringing. And of course, Worf is just one example of that. This is all over Spock's characterization as well. And basically everyone who's not a human that we ever meet in in Star Trek. And in fact, the biggest place where we've actually talked about scientific racism on the network has been on Lower Decks, our Star Trek show. And in particular, also actually on our Star Trek forum, uh, uh, on the forums that we run, because the idea of the connection between race and culture is something that came up in the very first episode of Discovery. I mean, it's like the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes of that show, the phrase race and culture uh, in, in regards to Klingons and Vulcans actually is uttered on that show. So at any rate, that's what's going on here, right? When Wolf is saying, well, what if there were people who looked like this type of oak leaf in autumn or this color of oak leaf in autumn, you know, this type of orange, this type of red, this type of yellow and so on, and then giving them attributes, talking about the things they would be famous for, the stereotypes that people would have of them. And for Wolf too, right, this is really tied to adventure fiction and also field anthropology, both of which were super popular, super interesting in the 19th century and, and early 20th century as well, right? The, the formative things that Wolf was reading as a kid, where the idea is that these people who have skin color that resemble the colors of deciduous trees as they're turning in autumn, uh, these people also inhabit uh, obscure and exotic and just sort of previously undiscovered places on the globe is the idea there. And so that's where that's wrapped up in this this uh, second age of exploration in the 19th century. And the then also in the field anthropology that follows those discoveries as well. And so the background of, of this, or the, the maybe the backbone of this, right, is a real interest in discovering new cultures and, and learning about them, being interested in them, wanting to know their their ways, wanting to explore, actually, I would say, to, to borrow something else from Star Trek, the infinite diversity in infinite combinations of what it means to be human, but this passage does also implicitly understand that the the strangeness, the newness of these cultures would also be wrapped up in their skin color. But at the same time, right, Wolf is envisioning here that eventually there would be cultural change, there would be cultural assimilation, and he's really even envisioning people with these skin colors, people from these obscure island locations, you know, sort of somehow hidden island locations, as if they were living in suburban America in the second half of the 20th century. And so he's envisioning that people with these skin colors would become members at the country club, which would be strange at first, but then fine. And so Wolf ends this this passage here that really is romanticizing the idea and ideal of racism and, and these stereotypes by by mocking them, right? And then yeah, there's this stereotype of Native Americans here. Wolf Wolf has a, a clever way of describing them as redskins without actually saying that, but it's a pretty dark stereotype, and it is one that is based on 
a historical understanding of Native Americans or, or maybe even just like a journalistic understanding of Native Americans as opposed to a fictional one, right? This is not the stereotype of Native Americans that is based on Westerns, that is based on uh, especially the, the Westerns of uh, TV shows that were super popular in the 1950s, uh, things that Wolf himself would have seen when he was fairly young. And that certainly for me as a child populated my imagination. Right. And where where, in fact, Native Americans did have special skills and characteristics. They were trackers and hunters and uh, had uh, and had special ways of walking through woods without snapping any branches and so on. Could, you know, track uh, just by using the, you know, the slightest of breezes and navigate by the stars and all of that sort of thing. Right. This sort of Tonto, I guess, basically image. And that is not that is not the conception of Native Americans that Weir has in his mind, because all of that is stuff that was invented while he was already an adult and is not the experience that he had of Native Americans indirectly in the culture when he was a child and his worldview was being formed. Right. I mentioned in our last episode that there are a host of texts uh, that are conversion texts uh, and about Christian missionaries and evangelicalism uh, as it's kind of getting its foothold early in the American ideation as a nation that are is about proselytizing to these Native American tribes and kind of convincing them that they have these attributes in order to explain to them why they need Jesus. Of course, their land was taken from them. They were slaughtered. We fought wars with them over land and then kind of corralled them into places that are not as uh, habitable as where they were living. But the representation, the kind of global representation, a broad representation of Native Americans, uh, giving them these traits was part of an attempt on some level to convince them why they needed Jesus, why their religions, why their taking of strange oaths um, was insufficient to save them and to bring them into an American Christian culture. And so this brings us, I guess, into this larger understanding of the lost place. Uh, we have St. Brandon's Land, who I've tried to connect to the founding of North America and things like that, not in the founding sense of like as a nation, but like literally like sailed to um, connecting that to the Native Americans here who have lost their place and what they were is replaced by something else. And, and we get this pat representation of them also at the fifth birthday party where all the parents are kind of making these jokes about their silly names and practices and trying to do something with oil paint on deer skin though they are concerned with some historical accuracy they're willing to overlook at overlook it to put on this powwow for the well, white kids really of the neighborhood yeah, this deer skin that they're painting, it, it seems to be intended to serve as a replacement for something authentically Native American, something that's been been damaged or, or maybe just deteriorated with, with age because it wasn't uh, protected, wasn't put in this uh, uh, cornerstone, for example. Uh, and it, it seems to be something that was on public display. Maybe this is at the library. Maybe it's at 
one of the schools or something like that. But it, it seems anyway like it is something that's primarily for children. And so they are not at all worried about their replica here being detected as a fake, though, you know, that's obviously because they just don't know that Dr. Marsh is coming to visit any day now. Yes, we, we're not sure. And, and maybe we will be uh, as the book continues. <laughs> Let's continue with St. Brendan. I'm glad we did spend a little time with this representation of Indians in this text because we might come back to it, but I think it's important. And it's another element of this that really surprised me that Wolf is caught up with as, as he's thinking about how to write Weir and his recollections. But we're talking about lost places, and there are two references to St. Brendan. And this next one comes from Kate, who is Irish, ethnically, maybe a first-generation immigrant. Um, St. Brandon is a Celtic saint. Uh, he And she mentioned St. Brandon and the devil. And this is part of an exorcism story, I think, that's part of the adventure story, this navigation story. I think it's called an Imram. Uh, it's, it's a genre of old uh, kind of Irish and Celtic uh, storytelling um, about St. Brandon and his journey. So this sainthood story here is part of kind of an existing or contemporary style of storytelling of when it was told, this navigation and adventure story. This is mentioned in reference to how Jack struggles nobly with the Banshee before giving up a name for the first time. She compares him to a saint, though I think Jack is far from a saint if he's going to be the father of the Antichrist. Uh, and there's also plenty of reference to mythical creatures here too in the text in general, since we're talking about lost land and lost places, there's centaurs, cymergs, banshees, lamiae, ghosts. So this is all referring to a past or creatures from a past that we cannot return to even if we wish to, but whose metaphors are still meaningful and useful to us. Right. So I'm not sure if there's much to do with that, but let's move on to the actual physical lost places. These are places that are real, uh, but can't be returned to for one reason or another. And this is a large grouping here, though, hopefully not a rough grouping. Uh, this is all the houses, basically. I'm going to start with a single description late in chapter one on page 51 of our edition, because I want to point out how these physical structures as images are irretrievable on one level because they've been subsumed by nature. Uh, so here's the passage I'm going to read here. I remember Eleanor Bold once told me that the rose called Bellamore was found growing from a wall in a ruined convent in Switzerland. The walls of those old houses in my mind are like that. Uh, we're here is talking about all the properties he's owned or his family has owned. Rotting and falling. Yet at the same time armed with thorns and gay with strange flowers and bound tighter with the roots of all the living things that have grown there than they ever were with mortar and plaster. Uh, the next thing I want to do here is point out a description from Hannah's past and Weir's reflections upon it. This comes from pages 20 and 21. This is Hannah speaking about where she grew up. Now it's all gone. And when I went back there with Mary, Sugar Creek itself was gone, just dry rocks where it had been. And that house falling down, falling to nothing. I never in my life been a hundred miles off from that little house, but it's gone now. And I never saw it go. And here's Weir now reflecting. I wonder what would have happened if Hannah had slept at Sugar Creek Farm. I will call it that. No doubt the neighbors called it simply the mill place. Would Sugar Creek have flowed again, babbling in the night 
wetting all those dry stones. So it's about a drought basically destroying this land and nature taking over uh, what used to be Sugar Creek Farm and now it's just the mill place. Uh, Furthermore, Weir describes a beautiful weed that used to grow at his grandmother's house. Then he talks in this same section about trees' addiction to sunlight. It's a really dark picture of nature. His grandfather's house has no discernible exterior in his mind, and we discuss this, perhaps it's due to snow that has covered it, and he can't retrieve the exterior from his memory. Then finally, the only way to kill a banshee is when the sea comes onto the land and replaces it with a with a flood. Furthermore, you know, in terms of these physical places, there's references to the mutable dollhouse. Weir is often lost in his own in his own home. And again, I'm not quite sure what I'm pointing out here because this is a, just the first chapter. But these are the physical lost places that cannot be reached again. And these are really the ones that jumped out to me. And especially there's this recurring image of nature taking over and destroying what once was, even in his memory. But nature has done something. It's transmuted these places in his mind with this imagination of flowers. I should also point out, uh, there's a passage I'm going to talk about in our cosmology section about Chicago and Indianapolis in the far future being overgrown by nature and haunted by banshees. And this recurring image of the rose is brought up again there. Glenn, you have a hard task here now. You have to make sense of what I've just done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this chapter is replete with this imagery of, of decay uh, and of aging, right? And, and Weir himself is aging and decaying. And one of the most emotional moments, I think in this, in this chapter of of the present of the chapter, I want to say, rather than the, the memories themselves is when Weir is talking about what has happened to his body because of the stroke, that the the left side of his body just doesn't function properly and that his face doesn't look right to him and that he's deteriorating. His body is, is falling apart. And then we get that type of imagery about these various places, as you've just cataloged. And, and falling apart is also literally how this book opens. It's how the novel starts with this tree falling down and it is and it's falling down in part because of the the weather but i think we have to assume that the tree was rotting from the inside a, a little bit it was aging it was old as such that the weight of this snow made it uh, made it collapse uh, though i wonder though i do wonder about that i think one of the things we're going to want to talk about as we go on is to think about how old that actual elm tree was if it, if it was planted by eleanor bold and how all of that works and so on but Perhaps we will get more information about that. But the point is that the book even opens up with this image of of something falling down because of a kind of decay. Right. And, and I wonder if there's this deeper suggestion that we are all going to fall victim to nature at some point, that no matter what we build or how great or grand it is, no matter what kind of legacy we leave behind that it's all going to be gone. It's all going to be subsumed by either other memories or by nature itself. It, you know, the best laid schemes of mice and men, uh, gang after Agley as, as, <laughs> as, uh, 
as Robert Burns wrote. Um, but yeah, so this is just another series of images that I think we have to keep in mind. The subsuming of nature that is at once kind of cleansing in the case of the Banshee, but also really destructive and also leaves us as we age with a sense that we really can never return to these lost places. And that even the places where we live might be lost to us uh, through our own succumbing to our bodies decay. Uh, and so that that is, I think, something to, to keep in mind. That's certainly a theme. Um, I'm interested to see if more of this subsuming of uh, by nature of the physical world is going to continue with us in the story. There are two passages about memory here that I we also have to touch on about the kind of lost time. Um, and I think they're really important. Of course, this whole chapter is a tra travelogue within one's memory, but two passages really identify Weir's relationship with memory of lost time. And this is where I think we can um, make interpretive gestures about how we're reading the story. So the first is on page 32. This is about childhood memory. This is Weir remembering this Christmas. Here's what he says. I believe in some sense, much akin to the belief in faith that I noticed, felt, or underwent what I describe. But it may be that the only reason childhood memories act on us so strongly is that being the most remote we possessed, they are the worst remembered, and so offer the least resistance to that process by which we mold them nearer and nearer to an ideal which is fundamentally artistic, or at least non-factual. So it may be, that some of these events I describe never occurred at all, but only should have, and that others had not the shades and flavors, for example, of jealousy or antiquity or shame that I have later unconsciously chosen to give them. The next passage I want to uh, talk about here with memory is on page 42. And Glenn, this is the one that we brought up in our last episode. It seems to me that we ought to have kept records by the new generations of our remoteness from events of high significance. When the last man to have seen some occurrence or personality of importance died, and then when the last person who knew him died, and so on. But first, we would have the first man describe the event, this thing that he had seen, and when each of them was gone, we would read the description publicly to see if it still meant anything to us, and if it did not, the series, the chain of linked lives, would be at an end. So in this first passage, as, as Weir is approaching his sense of the importance of memories, it's our ability to mold them, uh, to, to give us a sense of ideal, uh, of, of giving us an identity, an ideal anchor to our past. But in the second one, he's thinking about how, one, culturally, there's a we here. So socially, we record the past. And when we should be letting go of past events that no longer form our present. Uh, so there's this personal, interpretive, subjective move. And then there's a social move to, I don't know, discard history in a sense. But what's strange is that the second passage is brought up in the context of Weir's mother dying. Uh, so Glenn, how do these passages help you approach Weir's own sensibility in his storytelling, in his travel through memories? And what, what do you make of these passages? Well, yeah, right off the bat, I mean, Wolf is just telling us, hey, maybe everything here is just made up. <laughs> 
<laughs> like maybe maybe all of these things that Weir is presenting in his memories are just not true. They're just not memories. They're a a, a story he's telling to himself uh, while he's sitting around the the fire in his empty mansion, sad and alone after having had a stroke and not having anyone to care for him and having to preserve his candles. I mean, which is really a sad story. I mean, it's already a sad story, but then to imagine that none of these things even maybe actually happened. I don't know that Wolf's really going to take it that far, but he's telling us we should be that skeptical of everything that we're encountering here. And so we're going to have to keep that in mind for sure. Right. I mean, we, we know he's thinking about his grandfather here who had a caretaker with him as he suffered the decline of old age. Uh, so, and that is kind of connected to this first, this first passage as well. So Weir is alone. His grandfather was not. Uh, and we should also think about how these events are actually all being molded to an ideal. So Weir is in some sense trying to idealize his past, which means he might be artfully or non-factually misleading us about some of these events uh, as we continue in the text as well. But this other passage that you brought up, I mean, this just is really strange to me. This this method that he proposes for how we will uh, publicly remember the past and, and commemorate and, and celebrate the, the past by keeping a, a series of, of records in which people give like an oral account of something important, uh, some event of high significance or a person of high significance, apparently, as well, uh, to give an oral account of that and then to describe that event again when that person dies, like someone who heard that story to tell that story again and and so on, to have these sort of like public performances of the, the story of the time when, you know, Joe saw the president uh, in a parade or something like that, or, you know, remembering uh, where you were when the First World War or the Second World War ended or something like that, that then when those sort of oral histories that uh, this, through this chain of transmission, when those accounts no longer matter to anyone, when they don't mean anything, when they don't have any emotional resonance, then that's that's how we know that that world, the world of that story is is gone and isn't our world anymore. I mean, when it's a really weird, you know, type of public commemoration, although, you know, I mean, our type of public commemoration these days, like how we honor our war dead is to have car sales and so on, which is, you know, I suppose weirder, actually. (laughs) It certainly is weirder (laughs) if you put it like that. Uh, Yeah. I mean, this passage is, is kind of stunning in some ways because, I think when you study at least the history of ideas, um, but you study history itself, so I'll just talk about the history of ideas. You, you reach a point, I think, where you recognize that what has happened, maybe the ideas that impact other ideas, and maybe this is how like uh, apprentice master type relationships are learned. So think about, well, we could even think about physics in some sense that the amount of ground gained by physics in the, in the second half of the 20th century means that certain things have to be discarded, but also much more has to be learned by new students. And then they have to take all of that compact information. Things that took somebody a lifetime to uncover can now be taught in a single class or in a single unit. Um, and, and teaching, I think, is one way that maybe we can do this sort of oral transmission of history. And it happens with ideas. It happens with science. 
I'm not sure how this could happen with a, a liberal art like history uh, or philosophy or the study, the study of literature or ideas or something like that. But it does seem to me that there, it's not entirely without merit as an idea to say, okay, well, this idea really existed in a, in a society and flourish, could flourish in a society where, say, agrarianism was the norm, where they weren't worried about uh, welfare because the poor had access to food and housing. That was maybe a norm in the society in some sense. So yeah, I I don't know quite how to draw that out, but to recognize when an idea or uh, an event no longer impacts the present, no longer is maybe a pragmatic tool within that that provides us a framework within which we can now make decisions about what our world is and what we want it to be is kind of what is going on in some sense with this passage, but also indicates to us that Weir is maybe trying to globalize his own memories that he no longer wants to be bothered with. That if there was just this way to cast them off, that we could no longer that we could say that they're no longer important. Maybe we'd be better off. It's a very strange passage. Well, I, I actually feel like this is a lamentation here. So, so Weir's relationship with memory is unusual. It is different than most people's relationship with memory or relationship with the past. We're obviously as someone with a high amount of nostalgia. He's he's built a mansion that is, you know, at least partially a museum to homes that uh, his dead family members used to live in or rooms that he saw when he was a, a, a child or, or, you know, younger than he was when he built this house at any rate. So he's really connected to the past. He's also really interested in the stories that people he knew have to tell about their own past. And this passage here is, is you know, wrapped up in the introduction of Hannah talking about her childhood, telling uh, the story of something that happened to her, two, two things really, that happened to her when she was a child, and also relating a story that someone else told her when she was a child. Three stories that Weir still remembers here in his 60s, having had a stroke and is thinking about them. Yeah, that's a really fair point. I had not encountered this passage as a as a mode of lamentation. I guess uh, sometimes you know, there's the classic Jeremiah, which is like the past is gone, and now we're living in this kind of impure uh, present because we've forgotten all the rules that made us who we are, and and we're all corrupt and rotten. And then there's kind of the the Latinate. Uh, you'll correct me on this a mode of the lamentation, which is like the Ubi Sunt, which is like the, where is it? Like, where did it go? Like the 90s song, like where have all the cowboys gone? Right. Like, <laughs> like Aragorn has one of these lamentations in the Lord of the Rings. If I'm not mistaken, he's like, where are the heroes of the past? Where is the, you know, whatever the, where, the, where is it as a mode of lamentation? And this to me, if it is a lamentation communicates a deep, grief, like in a, a sense that he, we cannot escape the past, even when it's to our benefit to do so. And maybe that's the way I could read this passage as, as a lamentation. 
Right. I think that what Weir is doing here is really he's thinking about the fact that these memories matter to him. The past matters to him, not just the past of his life, but the past of the lives of people he knew. Hannah's childhood matters to him. But yet he's living in a world here. Maybe it's, you know, it's 1970, maybe it's 1975, something like that, where I think if he just randomly stopped someone on, you know, Main Street, Cassonsville and said, would you like to hear the story about my housemaid's visit to the Indian reservation in Western Kansas when she was a child in the 19th century? The answer is going to be, no, I'm not interested in that. That's not something that means anything to me, but it does still mean something to Weir. And that's that's what he's lamenting. That's what he's, he's complaining about here or, or pointing out, calling attention to is the, the way that change happens so quickly in high modernity because of well a variety of factors one of them or so one of them certainly being technology but that change is happening so quickly that just even within a single person's own lifetime the world that they are living in can seem so different so transformed from the world of their childhood, let alone the world of stories from like their grandparents that they themselves heard when they were a child, which I know is getting kind of convoluted there to keep track of all those different pronouns. But you know, the point is simply that the the pace of change is so fast that the the mental construct of what the world is now and what the world was like when people I care about were younger is now just like a foreign place. It's an alien world that simply would not make sense or mean anything or interest uh, a young person in 1970. And so for him, that means that 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 world is now lost. Yes. I mean, and and this section was indeed uh, titled in my notes, The Lost Places. And I think (laughs) you're you're absolutely right to point that out. But you're also kind of veering into the cosmological uh, concerns that Weir has. And and I think now is a really good time to kind of transition into that as we're thinking about change, how not only the, the world changes, but how we're stuck with our concepts of it, even as the world moves beyond us. I mean, we, we cover the gunslinger on Elder Sign. <laughs> the world has moved on is one of these phrases in uh, in that text. And I think that that is part of Weir's examination of cosmology. So let's just talk about that. So this is our last section, uh, though we might have some errata at the at the end of it, but this is the last section of my outline here. So I, I'm going to start with cosmology. We're going to start with the big circles, like the world of Weir, the universe of Weir, and then move on to his individual uh, sense of place in, in the chain of being. Uh, if we can call it that, uh, you can say we're moving through these big circles to smaller circles, because I don't know, in literature, it's always circles you're moving through, I guess. <laughs> so the first sense we get that that Weir is thinking about his place in, in the world, really in the cosmos, uh, or that he's cosmologically minded is when he's thinking about, you know, dead Uncle Joe's portrait. He's remembering that the setting for Joe's portrait is a Tuscan garden. And this is what Weir says is he's kind of reflecting on that image and being stuck in his own present. He says, now, when I sit alone before my fire and look out at the wreck of the elm revealed by lightning flashes, confused and ruinous as a ship gone aground, it seems to me that the garden 
is the core and root of the real world, to which all this America is only a miniature in a locket in a forgotten drawer. And this thought reminds me, and is reinforced by memory, of Dante's Paradiso, in which, because the wisdom of this world was the folly of the next, the earth stood physically central, surrounded by the limbus of the moon and all the other spheres, greater and greater and at last by God, but in which this physical reality was, in the end, delusive. God standing central in spiritual truth and our poor earth cast out, peripheral to the concerns of heaven, save when the memory of it waked with something not unlike an impure nostalgia, the great saints and the Christ from the contemplation of the triune God. So I, I'm going to point out a few things here, and then uh, I'd be happy to hear your comments on this. One thing to point out here is that Dante had a literally different cosmology than what we have today. His writing, his existence was prior to the Copernican revolution where the, and, and so Dante believed that the earth, and this was the, the scientific model that the earth was the center of the universe and everything orbited around the earth and that God was somewhere nine levels in uh, the Paradiso model beyond the earth. So the physical model of the universe matched man's conception of the order of being the order of the world. God created the earth and it stood central in God's plans and concerns for all natural things. And then man is the agent of God in some sense on this planet and ought to be going about on God's business. But now post Copernicus, the universe is is just vaster than we could imagine, and the earth orbits the sun. It's not the center of anything. And mankind is not only living in this backwater part of the universe, but it's living in, in an even more insignificant uh, demarcation of that, a nation. Uh, and so this planet is something that God, if any theological cosmology is to hold water, only remembers once in a while when he's not basking in his own glory or not basking in the glory the saints give him. So that's one sense of the passage. I'm sure you might have another one, um, but if we could just hold off talking about the America stuff, we'll get to all of that in a moment. Yeah, one thing I just want to emphasize here when you're when you're talking about cosmology in this sense, and you know, you brought up earlier about like what do we mean when we say cosmology? Because we do often just use it as a euphemism for like worldview. Like, how do you see the world? Like, how do you approach being alive, being a person uh, in in a society, and so on? But here we're talking literally about the study of the cosmos. What is the model that you have in your mind of how the the, the Earth where we're standing on, and then all the stuff that we see up in the sky, like you know the, the not the birds, but, you know, the sun, the moon, planets, stars, and so on. How are those things related? That's what we're getting at here, right? And medieval Christians and, and ancient people, of course, as well, medieval people, ancient people had a different picture of this than we do. And Dante's cosmology, as it's presented in the Paradiso, is often held up as being kind of like the model of uh, medieval Christendom. I, I'm skeptical about how true that is, but that's fine. We'll take it as, as given here <laughs> as the reality of this story. And we have seen this invoked before. We saw this invoked in the, the fifth head of Cerberus as as well. And the idea is that, you know, the the planets that we see in the, the night sky, the ones that we can see with the, the naked eye, which is obviously not all of them, have actual 
spiritual significance as well. Those are like places you can get to and what are they for? Who's there? What's there? Why are they out there circling, circling the earth? And, you know, where physically is God in all of that and the saints and, and so on is a question that people had when they were trying to figure out how does the universe actually work? And, and that's something always that, you know, I teach the scientific revolution uh, in, in world history and Western civ classes because it's really important for a real shift in uh, worldview taken in the other sense, but also in this cosmological sense as well. But my students always kind of repeat this type of, of idea as being like, this is what people in the Middle Ages thought. And so, yes, the Copernican revolution was revolutionary in that sense. And my students always extrapolate from this model. And, and, and they've been told this before of course, right? But they, they always assume that that means that medieval people therefore thought that humans were the center of the universe and therefore also the most important thing in the universe. But that's not really true. Medieval people, theologians and philosophers, at least, I mean, let's be clear about who we're talking about here. Medieval theologians, medieval philosophers had a pretty dim view of humanity and a pretty dim view of this world that we live in. We are fallen. We're a fallen species. We're all just kind of waiting around for the world to end so that it can be replaced with something better. And Wolf has that here because it is also in Dante. In fact, it's heavily emphasized in Dante. And because also, right, Wolf has actually read Dante all the way through. He's read the Divine Comedy all the way through. Most of us, of course, right, we just read the Inferno in high school. It's all we ever get to. But Wolf has read the whole thing, the whole Divine Comedy. And so he also gets the part where Dante explains that in reality, that physical presentation of what the planets and the sun and the moon are doing is actually a delusion because in spiritual truth, God actually is the center of everything. That's a huge part of this cosmology is that it's actually a ruse. It's a delusion, the way that the universe physically looks. Because in fact, we know that humans are not central. We know that humans are not the center of everything. God is the center of everything. And we're about as far from that as we can get. Right. And, but that was a, a, a theological argument that had to be put forth in order to account for the cosmology and man's sense of place no longer aligning, right? Is that, well, okay, then if we look at it metaphorically, it makes sense. And so you get this kind of breakdown, this start of breaking down of the order of being when our cosmology doesn't match our reality in any sense. So new cosmologies are needed in terms of what is the universe and what is our place in it. Uh, and new spiritual truths and new spiritual arguments need to be made because they're no longer mutually reinforcing. And that I think, you know, I bring I was starting with this passage and I'm really glad uh, with the direction you took the last passage we talked about uh, that one on page 42, that this is a, another rapid change that our understanding of the world no longer makes sense. That that so much has changed that we need a whole new accounting of our of our reality in some sense. And to find our place in it requires a, a whole separate part kind of work. And Weir has lived through a time where you don't have a flushing toilet in the house. You use the chamber pot in the bedroom to now having a dishwasher. And it's this this change that no longer accounts for the way the past may be reinforced our sense of place within the world. 
Yeah, and our relationship with materiality is a huge part of this story. I mean, it's so, I think it's so important how much attention we're as the narrator of this book is uh, the narrator of the story is paying attention to material objects, right? That he, he tells us about the car. He has uh, Hannah tell us about the, the construction of this coffin. Uh, she, she also mentions the, the telephone. We get such detail about the object of this, this painting and, and so on. I, I mean, the painting of Joe, I mean, but then also, yeah, this deerskin, I suppose. Also these material artifacts really matter in this story. The whole business with the Christmas presents and so on is, is, and, and so it just seems like these material objects, and I guess the furniture we know for sure is one of the ways that Weir is interacting with the past that for him, these are totems of, of people he has, he has known things to, that are worth preserving, but also not just totems to these individuals, but totems to an entire world that doesn't exist anymore. And so then he gives us this cosmology that makes a strong differentiation between the material and the spiritual. And maybe while at the same time, we're kind of positing, or at least I am, I'm wondering anyway, if Weir is actually like spiritually projecting himself backwards in time. Well, it's a great question. And the next passage I want to bring up here is actually the cosmological viewpoint with regards to materiality. And this is page 27. This is the passage about the uh, simulated stag on the knife and the... um, uh, the passage also about the fantasy races, basically, and the usefulness, the dubious usefulness of stereotyping, perhaps. <laughs> uh, we can we can take all this up. But first, let's just look at the cosmological viewpoint that is put forth here. This is what is written uh, about the knife again, about the simulated staghorn. The image of a simulated stag, his horns held proudly as those of any elm deer, ranging the forest among the now waking trees, trees whose leaves are dying with the summer in every color, like bruises, but bruises beautiful as the skins of races unborn, withheld from us because God or destiny or the blind chance of scientists... Scientists whose blind, piping ape god, idiot god we have met before, we know you, troubler of Babylon, has denied us sight of all these things, of all these... Uh, and here I'm going to paraphrase heavily what comes after because it's, it's a huge passage. Um, uh, but these unknown races who worship like weird things like sundials um, and, and all of these unknown races and their practices are caught up in a manufactured world. And this passage ends, as we brought up earlier, with this imaginary hunter from St. Brendan's land, this race that's dying off, who shot the simulated deer, the simulated stag, and who then the toy maker came and took the simulated horns to make this knife. So, Here's a passage then on the cosmological level that seems to indicate that the role of God in creation is presently diminished or denied because we have maybe too much knowledge that occludes our imagination. Like, we, we will never find St. Brendan's Island or the kingdom of Prester John with these strange mythical races who we then, you know, reduce or represent in travelogues to having these strange practices, basically like a Star Trek episode. And (laughs) Weir then is wondering, like, what's left to discover? Are we just now stuck 
with the limitations of science or maybe it's our destiny to be born in this time where there's not this magical world, this exotic world left to discover, or is it God who withheld the possibility of these discoveries from us? Uh, so there's this weird concept of having to do with being born in a time where science has replaced this imaginative landscape of the places that are on the edges of the map or beyond the map's edge. And that that's our cosmology. Now we can't imagine these things anymore because we have to live in this world where these possibilities don't exist because science is what does the discovery, not the mission from God to be a navigator. Yeah. And again, I mean, this passage is another lamentation. This is the Ubisoft passage, basically. Right. He's, he's really sad that this this world, this idea that you know, there might be dragons out there, right? That, that who knows what's what's at the edge of the map. We haven't explored everything. There's a lamentation here for, for that type of world. You know, fortunately, Gene Wolfe gets to go on and become a great fantasy writer <laughs> and, and science fiction writer and actually invent imaginary people, uh, invent imaginary places and, and uh, populate them with imaginary people. But that's what's being lamented here is that that you know we know what is in the world and so now there's no more space for this sort of rich imagination but also there's just no more space for the, the discovery of like whole peoples and and so on and the, you know this is a, an old man here uh, perhaps you know lamenting yeah that science now has discovered basically everything that there is to be discovered at least about sort of the, you know what the earth is like and where everything is and so on and so you know what it, what is next and you know of course hopefully what's next is some space exploration and so on but yeah we're not actually going to go out and meet and meet star trek aliens for sure one of the things that really jumped out to me and i made a joke about this in the recap episode but one of the things that really jumped out to me in this passage is that there's a reference to Lovecraft's God Azathoth here, the blind idiot God. That's Azathoth. And of course, we know Wolf was a, a big reader of, of Lovecraft. Uh, he's invoked him before. We, we looked at a passage in the fifth head of Cerberus that was uh, more or less cribbed straight from uh, a Lovecraft story, though then, of course, twisted to his own own purposes there. And, and part of why this really jumped out to me is that this lamentation here is is in a kind of like, it's, well, it's in a definite parenthetical that is also in like a, a relative clause here that is really sort of upset at science, right? And is upset at modernity. But Lovecraft himself, of course, is a real advocate of, of science, though also perhaps a hater of modernity in some weird way, but a real atheist and someone who hated uh, hated religion. Uh, and just the, the, the contrast of those things here uh, to me was really interesting. Right. There does seem to be some like classic other like Jeremiah lamentations here where you're just like, God, why have you let this all... Why have you not intervened on some level and let all of this promise go to waste? Um, but another thing to consider here is that this God, the God of our current cosmos, the cosmos of now, the now of the scientists world is the cosmological horror that we find in Lovecraft, that this is an uncaring universe, a universe that is maybe even out for our destruction. Um, and we've looked at the complicated relationship, I think, between nature and destruction in this text, that there is some relationship between the material world and nature. And, and we'll get to that, I think, when we look at how Weir is encountering America and his cosmology, his social world, his culture. 
But here I think Wolf is pointing out that this cosmology, in contrast to the Catholic one, is the horror one. It's the dark universe that doesn't care for us or is maybe trying to destroy us. Yes, right. And Azathoth is one of these uh, these gods in, in Lovecraft's, uh, I mean, we'll say mythos here, for, why not? In Lovecraft's mythos, who is just like an agent of chaos. He is, you know, an extremely sort of evil uh, conception uh, here in, in, Lo- in Lovecraft's mythos. And uh, the piping business here, the piping ape god, idiot god, that's the, the line, or blind piping ape god, idiot god we get here. Um the, there, there's piping associated with Azathoth as well. So this this whole line here is a you know a little joke that Wolf is Wolf is playing. It, it certainly amused me. Yeah, piping comes up uh, I think twice in this first chapter, um, and it also feels as though it has some I don't know reference to uh, uh, like a bacchanalia sort of thing or like Pan, right? <laughs> you know, just like the the uh, also the attraction of children to people with pipes. <laughs> there's uh, there's two references, and I and I don't quite remember the second one, but I, I remember leaving the impression of, you know, pan or a bacchanalia or, you know, the Pied Piper, like children piping, something like that. Just a playful fae sort of uh, situation. Uh, let's move on from these two big cosmologies, the uncaring universe and the Catholic cosmology and man's place in that to kind of situate we're maybe more distinctly within America. I think we can say that we're feels he's now living in a world that uh, is in, in, in the uncaring universe, though God may still be a spiritual truth. The world that he lives in, the physical world, almost demands or asks of us that we think of the universe as uncaring, and maybe he wishes it was different. Let's look at his relationship with uh, America now. So the first passage of Amer- about America is brought up in the Paradiso passage, where, as we said, America is only a miniature in a locket in a forgotten drawer. And this thought is continued. It's picked up in the next paragraph where we are saying, says, I know that this planet of America, turning round upon itself, stands only at the outside, only at the periphery, only at the edges of an infinite galaxy, dizzily circling, and sometimes that the stars that seem to ride our winds cause them. Sometimes I think I see huge faces bending between those stars to look through my two windows, faces golden and tenuous, touched with pity and wonder. So there is some big cosmology stuff going on here, but it's a little bit more focused here, maybe on the insignificance of, I don't know, history or something, nation states, maybe. I don't know. what What's your, I could keep going with the America passages, but if you want to jump in and get this uh, first one here, since we already discussed a, a lot of it, uh, you are welcome to do that, Glenn. <laughs> well, there's a real sense of loneliness and isolation in this passage, right? That he's describing living in this place that is uh, stands at the outside, that is only at the periphery, only at the edges of someplace that is infinite. And this perhaps could even really just describe the isolation and loneliness that Weir himself is is feeling, like this, this big mansion that if he wants to talk to a doctor, he has to conjure one up from his own memory, that he he. He has no one to pay attention to him, no one to interact with him. There's a real loneliness here. But it, it's hard to not get really obsessed with the, just the the phrase planet of America. Yes. And especially turning round upon itself, it gives a real uh, indication of like self-aggrandizement of 
America thinking it is so central that it orbits around itself in some sense. It has that much pull, but then it's entirely insignificant. And if that's the case, how much more insignificant is a life of a man whose IDR indicates uh, (laughs) self-concern on some level? You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, so so there is this real sense here in this passage and then in the other passages about this as well of America as this like special place. Uh, here it's kind of given this almost science fictional language, but then we're we're going to get something a little more fantastical in the in the next passage, but that America, I mean this is like American ex- exceptionalism in a kind of speculative fiction sense here, but like a mystical speculative fiction sense. Right. Especially, you know, when the first mention of this, the continued thought is the planet America, but then America is only a miniature in a locket in a forgotten drawer. I mean, isn't this the exact plot of uh, the first Men in Black movie Uh, (laughs) with the the galaxy on the cat's on the cat's uh, collar? You know, it's just a a, a real picture of the minuscule insignificance of of our maybe our building up of ideas of things. And especially as we move into this, this next next passage on page 38, which seems to imagine the destruction of America. And maybe this time that we're describing is, you know, between now and when the book of the new sun takes place. I see some real. ideas uh, that, that that are beginning to form that Wolf picks up on later. And hey, here's the second use of piping here. And this is why I thought of it as I did. So let's look at this passage on page 38. Weir says this, I believe America is the land of magic and that we, we now past Americans were once the magical people of it, waiting now to stand to some unguessable generation of the future as the nameless pre-Mycenaean tribes did to the Greeks, ready at a word, each of us now to flip piping through groves unknown, our women ready to haunt as Lamiae, the rose-red ruins of Chicago and Indianapolis, when they are little more than earthen mounds, when the heads of trees are higher than the 125th floor. So here's here's a f- an image of the future, People who look at us as the unimaginable past and view our progress, our technologies as the magic of the world uh, and our ideas about our peoples, our genders, our, you know, our women are viewed the same way we view the Lamiae uh, or something along those lines. And each of us is seen to be like those uh, attending a feast given by Pan or, 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 uh, uh, whomever by pan flitting piping through groves unknown that were viewed in the same way we view our, our ancient past and myths. Uh, and, and that, Hey, that's one perspective to have on the present, I guess. Yeah. I mean, this is a really cool idea just to, to imagine that, you know, we're, we're way in the future and our existence is only a, a dim memory that's preserved in, folk tales and something that we might you know, describe as like myth or, or legend or fairy tale as being magical and you know something if you encounter something that's unexplainable you say ah yeah that you must have encountered an american you know you know as a, who's you know the, the, the spirit of an american or something like that you heard their panpipes as they were going through the woods and so on <laughs> and of course what's laughable about that right is that we know that there's nothing of the sort going on we are not a magical people we're just regular we're just regular people but it is possible that when 
the Sears Tower in Chicago or the, the Hancock Building or whatever uh, are, are now actually just earthen mounts. Uh, that, 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 that whenever, you know, when we get to that point, that may be how this civilization that we're a part of is remembered, especially, you know, if we destroy ourselves through climate change or nuclear war, both of which would have been on Wolf's mind here in the early 70s. Right. And and if we combine this kind of thought of how will the people of the far future encounter us with uh, what Wolf said about the kind of oral tradition that he's imagining, that you described as a lamentation, that what remains of us may be only these basically phrases in a sentence, these clauses that exist in a sentence, and that the richness of our lives, of our present, are reduced to to, to clauses in a, in a long sentence, and clauses that are inaccurate, to say the least. Right. I think that what he's envisioning here actually is is people in the future who have no records of what we're actually like they've only got some artifacts and barely any of them right because even our even our skyscrapers are are buried as mounds at this point and so are taking the handful of trinkets that they have left from our civilization and are making up stories about what we were like it's a it's a real cool idea i mean there's an entire spin-off here that you could take and i, I guess wolf did wolf did he wrote that he wrote <laughs> he that already, book he yeah, sure sorry. did cancel writing prompt <laughs> <laughs> well, let's then take these two passages, and uh, before we think about Wolf's, you know, real sense of attitude, his attitude about himself, uh, where do you think we're? How do you think we're understands his place in America? We get the sense that his place in the universe is kind of like conflicted. He knows that there could be a cosmology that places him, uh, as I said, between the beasts and angels, which is the classic Catholic cosmology represented in in Dante, uh, and then that he's nothing but a person who has access to knowledge but no ability to explore, with with the exception of his own imagination. But how about how he conceptualizes his place in his culture? Everything that we've got in this chapter just emphasizes over and over again that Weir is someone who is near death and is waiting to die and is thinking about what the world is going to be like when he's gone, is thinking about what the world is going to be like when America is gone in in several, in, you know, different, many different places. It's not just like once he thinks about those things. They're coming up over and over again. And at the same time, then he is reminiscing about his, his own life and what that has been like. Wolf is brilliant here in the way that he tells us nothing about Weir's life, but leaves us with the the hints that at some point uh, in episodes that we have not encountered at all yet, Weir is going to seemingly be, or at least think of himself as, someone who's fairly important. He is someone who has wealth or at least has had wealth. He is someone who has inherited a company who's been the head of some kind of organization. He was a scientist of of some sort or an engineer maybe of some sort and then took to managing the, the, the business side of things. We don't really know any particulars about any of that. We know also that his family was wealthy when he was a child. I mean, there, there's materiality that tells us that, the big house and and so on. They're hanging out with the doctor family as well. But we also know it because at this birthday party, the fifth birthday party, Mrs. Green is there. And Weir explains to us that his family owned the farm that Mr. and Mrs. Green worked on. They they leased that farm as uh, as tenant 
farmers. And in fact, even here describes how, even though they have no formal relationship as as boss or, or as employer and employee or something like that, because Weir's family owns the farm that Mr. and Mrs. Green are leasing, Mrs. Green always acts subserviently to Weir's mother, right? And so Weir certainly is growing up with a feeling uh, of being someone who is important, uh, perhaps better than other people. And then we know that he ends up having a place in at least the the, the upper middle class, of, uh, but, but really maybe even kind of the upper class, certainly in the, the elite of this part of Kansas. And he's running this business, has enough money to, to build this giant mansion with museum rooms and so on. And so at some point in his life, almost certainly, he's going, he will have thought of himself as being on top of something. Right. And being extremely important, being at the top of an organization, being in the upper echelon of society. But yet here he is now having suffered a stroke, being alone, having to preserve his candle. And now he's thinking about the, about whether or not even humans are actually the center of things or not and how far they are from God and how awful that is and what's going to happen to America in the future and are we even going to be remembered so what i'm getting at here is that this is a story about an old man who's wondering if anything means anything if his life has had any meaning any purpose but yet i think we can assume that 20 years ago he sure thought that it did and that he was awesome yeah, and and I think that will bring us to our next kind of cosmological worldview. Really, this is the worldview portion of it, uh, where we get a weird sense of place in his immediate community, which is really revealed. I think at the end of the of the chapter, remember we're is maybe imagining an idealized younger version of himself when he visits Van Van Ness, uh, whether that's in his mind or not. And Van Ness interrogates Weir on his attitude toward Weir's powers in the world, his willpower, perhaps. And Weir says... Basically, you know, all all I really wanted from you was advice about the effect of exercise on my stroke. I've got that. And now I really should wipe you out. You you read this passage too, Glenn. And Vanessa <laughs> asks if Weir believes if he can really do that. And Weir replies, of course. All I have to do is turn my mind towards something else. Uh, and then he says, like, objectively, I won't be able to prove that you're gone because you'll be gone. And then Vanessa says... Do you feel you can control the whole world just with your mind? And Weir basically says, well, not the real world, but this one that has been conjured from my imagination. And this then really raises the question of whether Weir, one, is able to distinguish the real world from his imaginary one, his memory-laden one. I suspect this will be kind of a central question of the text. And so I guess in wrapping up here, um, you know, one, Weir thinks he can control the world in some sense, at least the world that we're getting access to. And what then we've done at this point is try to lay out a place from which we can make interpretations of the text. And maybe we should just sum up then briefly Weir's worldview, which we've kind of already done, how he sees himself in the cosmos and his, and his power to affect change and just what he's doing with engaging with these memories. And I guess, Glenn, that what I'm asking is, is like, are we as readers going to interpret Weir as controlling the world of the text in some sense, and that's all we have access to, or are we in the mind of a person who is deluded, uh, who is mistaken about their place in the world, or is there something more speculative going on? 
Yeah. I mean, right now, certainly the last few pages of this chapter really pushed me to think that there is something speculative going on, but it seems like it must be related to the the stroke in, in, in some way and whether there's you know something has actually happened in the brain of, of Weir that is allowing for this, I, I don't know, type of like temporal astral projection, something akin to what we saw in a, a, a story by John V. Marsh, for example. So something that we know that Wolf is, is thinking about, if, you know, if there's a real like scientific explanation for you know why that might be happening or what's going on there or if this is just something that is going on sort of internal to his mind that he is uh, thinking about these things but that just the way that his memory is functioning is is strange because of the the stroke that's unclear to me at this point but there does seem to be some element of a lack of control here right he says that he can wipe the doctor out but then doesn't he actually has to keep doing what the doctor is telling him to do. And in fact, that's how that scene even begins. He just suddenly is back in the doctor's office because he was thinking about funhouse mirrors in another context and is then back in the doctor's office and says, oh, I thought you were gone. That is uh, one way of reading it. I, I am of two minds. I don't, as of this chapter, have a sense that anything speculative is going on. I mean, there's certainly ghosts and weird apparitions that appear appear to be real, at least in terms of the way they're presented in the text. But as far as I'm concerned, at this point, there are two real places or places that are actually presented as representing the present in the mind of Weir. And it's him as an old man uh, in the flagstone um, chimney room, uh, the fireplace room with the elm tree broken and him in the doctor's office. And I'm not sure which preceded which. I don't know yet. The way they're presented makes it feel as though the old man is the real man. Um, But then there's also indications here to me that Weir is this late middle-aged man who has begun to have a delusion that he will have had a stroke and he's in the doctor's office and everything is jumbled. So those are all I have. Those are my anchor points right now. That would be a weird story though. I mean, I mean, I, I see what you're getting at there, but then extrapolate that out one one step further though. And then our narrator of this story is actually the delusion of a character who is real in this story. So there's a, you know, then yes. there's the question of like, how, what is the sort of materiality of this book as an, as an, as an artifact, you know, in, in the world. So we'll have to keep a lookout for that as well. We will. This is a question that we don't have enough information on whether he's writing these things down or we are just as is suggested as we thought was in the episode with Katie talking about the Banshee as we're intruding on these memories in some sense. And this is a way that Wolf is indicating us to us that that's our role as a reader. Um, but I think the thematic app perception test here might be something that's an indicator of what's real and what's not. Uh, or it, it is, as Weir says, all conjured. And he's just alone in this, in this room, in this uh, f- chimney room, in this, in this fireplace room with candles sleeping on a bed that is not a bed wandering his house with these museum rooms, this front mirror maze uh, endlessly. Oh, that's the saddest story I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> we've got more to discover here. So yeah, I think we've covered about as much as we can. Obviously, there's far more approaches, as we always say. Uh, I always try to organize these discussions in some manner to get the most out of the text. But that is going to do it for this episode. And maybe you found that there is uh, something important that we missed. But uh, I don't know. Talk to us about it. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. Yes, please do come to the forum and talk with us about this chapter. We did, I think, leave a lot on the table. Uh, We only did four episodes on this chapter. We probably could have easily done twice that many. All right. So we're going to be back on July 6th with the beginning of chapter two. And in chapter two is where we are going to really start to take our time with this book. And I'm very excited about that. We're going to slow the pace down even from uh, what we've done here in chapter one. So this first episode of chapter two of of seven recaps that we have planned right now, uh, that first episode is going to be only a very few number of pages. It's going to be pages 56 to 63 in the 2012 Orb edition. And this is a phenomenal chapter, the chapter titled Olivia. Very excited to go through this so slowly, talk about it with Brandon, talk about it with all of you on the forum and on Reddit. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.